what you find is that the things that you did to run the company, say a year ago, two years ago, they just don't feel quite like they're working anymore. Like, oh, a year ago, I used to say this and magical things would happen. And now I say this and it's like nothing happens anymore. What's going on? What's wrong? I thought I said the magic words. Turns out those magic words don't work anymore. And that's really the act of growing. First of all, realizing that that's happening and realize that you have to learn to adapt. This is the Secret Leaders podcast from Infamous Media, and I'm Dan murray Serta. We bring you stories, ideas, and life lessons from top entrepreneurs you just won't hear anywhere else. Today, I'm talking to Jeff Lawson, the co-founder and CEO of Twilio, a cloud communication platform that lets businesses use everything from text to video calls in their sites and apps. Twilio is huge, possibly our biggest company we've had on Secret Leaders. Since its founding in 2008, it's grown to 4,500 employees, annual revenue of $1.74 billion, and is valued at $65 billion. So it's fair to say that Jeff is at the helm of a pretty big ship. But how did he get there? How do you build a company like Twilio? Well, first of all, We'll have to rewind and go back to Jeff's childhood and find out more about cardboard robots and the now vintage Apple IIe computer. You know, I spent a lot of my childhood just making things. And the interesting thing about the stuff I made, so my dad was a radiologist, so a doctor who you know reads x-rays. And at the time, this was in the 1980s, x-rays were not digital at all. It was just the very analog. It was like film, like the film you'd have in your camera, but these giant sheets of film that they'd use to take body x-rays and they'd ship them to the hospitals with the most beautiful cardboard inserts in the boxes, like this beautiful bleached rounded corners. I can still remember them. It was just like, not like, you know, a crappy, you know, shipping box. It was like this beautiful cardboard and they usually would just throw it away at the hospital, like this is even before recycling, my dad would bring it home. And we used to make these projects with this beautiful cardboard from Kodak. I remember it was Kodak. And we do stuff like we make, I'd say, dad, can we make a robot? Okay. And and we take out the cardboard and, I'd, and we'd make a box out of it. And we'd, we'd draw the the buttons, the knobs, the eyes, the arms, whatever we draw with, with crayons or markers on it, or we'd make a VCR. Dad, can we make a VCR? Okay. And we'd, we'd draw the buttons and the slot and all this kind of stuff for it. And then when we finished making it, I always say, hey, dad, now can we make it really work? And he'd say, he'd be like, uh, you know, it's a piece of cardboard with buttons drawn on it with markers. And I don't know how to make it really work to do that. You would need like a factory, you know, you need a, a multinational corporation to build a VCR. And so I was always kind of disappointed with the things that we built. And it wasn't until I got my first computer, an Apple IIe, when finally you could make something, you wrote some code and it would actually work. You'd tell the computer to do this thing and it would actually do that. And that's where I started to get this fascination with computers because here's this machine that you can essentially, with the fullness of your imagination, tell it to do something and it would actually work. Now, of course, the, the little programs I wrote in basic on my Apple IIe, like I'd show them to my parents and they'd say, hey, good job, Jeff, you know, but like no one, you couldn't really build anything of, of, of value or of, of meaning at that point. And it wasn't until the internet came along and the internet really like, I, I, I really first got into the internet when I arrived at college in 1995 and I had a 10 megabit ethernet jack, which was a far cry from the 14.4 dial up I'd been enjoying at home. And that's when I really started exploring this internet because now you could tell a computer to do something, you could write a program, but now there were millions and millions of people who could actually use that thing that you built. And so what the internet did is it took that 
kind of world of software, which was, you know, for like, you know, quote unquote hobbyists like me as a kid, just building stuff that were just toys. Now you could build stuff that were not just real in terms of they actually worked, but actually you had some form of distribution. People could actually interact with it. If you built something the world wanted or needed, you had an audience. And I thought that was just so cool. And it really harkens back though to my early days, starting with building those VCRs or robots that didn't work and writing those basic programs that nobody could ever see led me to the internet. And I think that's why the internet at that moment in time was such this amazing thing to then go explore and figure out how to build something of value with is because it was a natural extension of what I'd always been wanting to do ever since I was five years old, which is build things that really worked that the world would appreciate. So from starting with the five-year-old curiosity to the absolute drive and joy of the internet, there's some space to learn and grow in that period in your childhood. And then from getting to university and being obsessed with the internet and coming up with Twilio, did you have any failed toiled experiments or did you just knock it out like first time? Oh no, it's all failed toiled experiments. One of the things that I've learned is the best way to learn something new, I think, is to commit yourself to building something for a customer. And then you learn how to figure, figure out how to do it. But like, I find that, you know, just kind of doing something casually or tinkering, like without a, a stated purpose is oftentimes not the most productive way to learn something. And so when I was in college, I started a company with some friends because we wanted an excuse to figure out this internet thing. So we started a company doing academic content for college students. We paid college students to take lecture notes in their courses and then post them on our website for every other student in those courses to be able to learn from. And it was kind of, you know, it was kind of a silly idea, but it was something that was near to where we were. We could understand the market. We understood the customers. And it was just an, an excuse really to figure out how this internet thing worked. And so we built this, you know, the website. And back then, like building what quote unquote dynamic websites where, you know, a place where you'd have a, you could have a database and there would be, you know, people would input things like that was bleeding edge. And so we figured out, okay, well, how do you, how do you make it so that someone can upload a set of lecture notes? And it turns out like we invented the first probably content management system, actually, because we had millions of lecture notes online back in starting in 1997 up to our height in, in early 2000. You know, we started as a side project, uh, literally on the campus of the University of Michigan, where we were. And then we got, hey, this is working. <laughs> Let's expand it. So we ended up raising some money. We expanded it ultimately to about 200 schools. We had 10,000 courses worth of lecture notes online. And we had hired, I think, 15,000 college students as our uh, employees. And this was uh, in 2000, we ended up raising venture capital. We moved the company out to Silicon Valley. This was all before we graduated college, but ultimately it was the classic dot-com roller coaster ride. We created this website that millions of college students came to every week. We made absolutely no money. We just lost money. We got acquired by a competitor in the, in the content space who had filed to go public in April of 2000 and who didn't make it out. <laughs> And they were bankrupt by August of 2000. And we had sold the company for equity because, oh, this great IPO, this would be amazing, the dot-com roller coaster. And of course, it was worth nothing a few months later. So completely classic story of the dorm room, like literally the dorm room, to like this filed IPO to bankruptcy all within, you know, essentially a couple of years. And despite that fact, like you can imagine as a 21-year-old at the time, like this was just... 
intoxicating as far as being able to participate in this whole historic moment of like the internet getting born. And so I jumped straight into my next thing and became the, the first CTO of this company called StubHub, which, you know, in the United Kingdom, you probably know Viagogo, uh, which was actually founded by one of StubHub's co-founders. Same idea. You can buy and sell live event tickets for concerts, sporting events, etc. This was founded in 2000. And I had the opportunity to come on board as the, the first technical person, the first CTO, to really build the technology, to figure out what the site needed to do and to get the thing off the ground, which was very cool. After that, I started a bricks and mortar retailer for extreme sporting goods like skateboards, snowboards, surfboards. And you might ask, what is a software developer who does not participate in any of those sports? Why would I start this company? Which is a fantastic idea. I wish I had asked myself that a bit more often. But I saw it as this interesting opportunity to say, like, what technology could create this amazing retail experience? Because we were starting this company in 2003. And it was like, when we looked around at all these retailers, it was like, you know, they all have all this legacy technology that they have to deal with. What if you had no legacy technology? What if you could just put the customer at the center of the experience you're trying to create and build all the technology that you need to create, establish a modern bricks and mortar retail experience? And we had this idea that, you know, skateboarding, snowboarding, surfing, these sports were a huge market, but there was no great retailer serving them. There were little mom and pop shops and there were big companies like Walmart, but there was nothing that was like kind of in that middle, what you'd call a category killer retailer. And we said, let's go build that and let's make it an amazing experience. We put a skate park right in the store. We let the like kids were a lot of our, our, our core customers, you know, like preteens and teenagers. And we built a membership program for them where they got their own little credit card for our store. It wasn't a real credit card, but they could earn points with everything they bought and then they could redeem it to get stuff. And we were building this really cool system. But ultimately at the end of the day, I was like, this is fun. I'm, I'm, I'm building a lot of cool technology. But at the end of the day, I don't really viscerally care about this product category, this customer base. What I love is the technology and like, yes, I got to build some interesting technology, but ultimately in service of selling more skateboards, I'm like, I want to get back into pure technology. And it was sort of interesting though. At this point, I had started three companies in my career and I had no idea how big companies worked. I'd never worked at a big company. I sort of thought if I'm successful as an entrepreneur, which is obviously the goal, then one day I'm going to have a big company. And I'm, I have no model in my head for how big companies work. I kind of know like, oh yeah, there's a big building, there's a logo at the top of the building and people walk in at nine and they walk out at five and I have no idea what they do all day because I've always been in the very earliest stages of a startup where you're, it's really just a mad scramble to survive and to stay in business. And there's really no plan. You don't really you know, have a, a, a lot that is like guiding you other than like the mad scramble of having to wear every hat. So I decided I wanted to get the experience of working at a big company that seems like it's scaling well to learn. What do I want to build one day? What should I do? What should I avoid in building a successful company as an entrepreneur? And so I had a short list of companies and I decided to uh, go to Amazon. And I got an offer to be one of the first product managers at Amazon Web Services. And it's a funny story. When I interviewed at, for Amazon Web Services, you know, Andy Jassy was in my interview loop and because he was heading up this brand new thing called AWS. And at the end of the, you know, that you get to that part of the interview where the interviewer says, oh, what questions do you have for me? I said, yeah, Andy, I have a question. What is Amazon Web Services? I've been through a whole day of interviews. I still had no idea what they did. He said, oh, it's a good question. Unfortunately, I can't tell you, but trust me, 
it's really cool. And that, as it turns out, is an amazing recruiting tactic because I, you know, it was a very portable 20 something. I was like, that sounds pretty alluring. So I picked myself up, moved to Seattle and started working at Amazon and, and, and absolutely blown away by all the interesting ideas that were percolating, including the products that were getting built. My office mate was the founding uh, product manager leading S3. And it was still very much like a small team of five engineers at that point in time. So those are some of the things. When I left Amazon, you know, I knew I wanted, I was ready to, to, to do the entrepreneurial thing again. I wanted to start my next company. And I looked at a wide variety of different things I could build, but I knew I wanted to build something where I viscerally understood and cared about the customer. I knew that's one of the key things I wanted to accomplish with my company. And when I thought about all three of my prior companies, I realized that every one of those companies, we were using the power of software to build things better, faster, to iterate constantly in service of our customers. And I also realized that each one of those companies, we had needed communications to engage with our customers. And whenever we needed communications, we would say, oh, that's what an amazing idea if we could do this thing. But wait a minute, I'm a software developer. I don't know how to do that. I have to go talk to carriers. I have to go talk to Cisco. And they give you these multi-year, multi-million dollar project plans about how you can implement some small idea. And you're like, that's not how software works. In software, you have an idea, you go build it, you build the prototype, you put it in front of a handful of customers, you get feedback and you iterate your way towards a better and better and better experience. And so we started Twilio to go solve that problem, saying, how do we bring all of this communications technology and the ability for companies to really use software to engage with their customers across every single touch point they have, how do we bring that into the pace and the cadence and the speed and the innovation cycle of software? And that's where we started Twilio back in 2008. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And 
You want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. 2008 indeed, right? So, you know, uh, financial crash. Did you have any issues raising money? And, you know, how did you how did you get your first customers? How did you get off the ground? How did you get awareness of Twilio? Because, you know, um, it's an enormous niche because everyone has a problem, but no one necessarily understands that it is one to solve, right? So how did you go about getting awareness for this problem? Give or take a trillion dollar niche. <laughs> it's like a trillion dollar niche that is uh, backed by the greatest tailwind in like business in the last 50 years, which is, you know, the digital economy. So when I had an idea, and there were several ideas that I was working on at the time I came up with the idea for Twilio. When I had an idea, what I would do is I would go talk to potential customers of the idea. And just very casually, usually like people I knew, friends, family, et cetera. And what I would do is I would say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about this idea. And I'd kind of explain the problem that it was there to solve. And I'd kind of just be waiting to see what their reaction was. And what you're trying to see is, did I just tickle an itch? Is there something there that like really piques their imagination so they're interested in learning more or not? Because if, it, if you pitch them, this is a friend or family member, so they're probably you know, pretty kind and polite. If you scratch an itch, they'd probably be curious to learn more. They might want to know, well, they had some questions for you. And when you do that well, they'd say, oh, that's really interesting, Jeff. You know, I'll give you an example. I was working on an idea that was all about computer backup. And I could do low-cost and reliable computer backup. And you know, the idea was, was called Larry, actually, after my dad, to pre prevent my dad from losing all of his photos on his computer, when inevitably his computer would crash and he'd call me and say, hey, Jeff, I think I just lost all my photos. And I, I didn't want that to happen to my dad. So I was working on like, what would be the easiest way for me to be like, here you go, just install this, your backup is done. And you know, I was working on like peer-to-peer -peer and all these interesting technologies. Turns out the idea we came up with was basically Dropbox, except I pitched it wrong. I pitched it as computer backup not synchronization and sharing. But nonetheless, I'd go to friends and family and I'd say, I have this idea I'm working on. It would be like this piece of software you install and for a couple dollars a month, you could ensure that everything on your computer was backed up. And people would say, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, oh, well, that's uh, interesting. So, uh, you know, how about the weather? And it's like, there's this awkward pause as they're like, I don't really know what to say because I want to be polite and I'm just going to casually change the subject, right? And you're like, and you just kind of take note. You're like, hmm, okay, well, I guess that problem statement did not resonate with them. And, you know, and so instead of asking a bunch of questions about, oh, does it do this, does it do that? They would be like, ah, you know, how about those tigers? <laughs> and so when I had that idea for Twilio, I went to a bunch of software developers and I asked them, Hey, I'm working on this idea where, you know, with a simple API, you could make a phone ring. And then when the person answered the phone, you could play back some text or some audio or, or, or bridge people together. Like you can basically do anything you can, you can do when you like call a big company, but you could do it just a few simple APIs. Are you interested in that? And they'd say, oh, that's, um, yeah, well, how's the weather? <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. You know, at first I was like, oh, well, I guess it's not a bad idea. And then a funny thing happened. About 30 seconds later, inevitably, that developer would say, oh, hey, I have a question. You know that, that telephone thing you were talking about a minute ago? 
could I, and they would say, you know, I was building a, an e-commerce site recently. Could I notify people when their package ships? And I would say, oh yeah, of course you could. Oh, could I connect a buyer and seller together so that they can coordinate? Oh yeah, of course you could. And what I found is that time after time, even though initially they were kind of like, oh, I'm not sure what to make of this thing, the gears would start turning. And within 30 seconds, they would come up with, oh, wait a minute, I recently had this problem. Wait, I wonder if what Jeff just said could have solved it. And when I saw that happen a bunch of times in a row, I was like, okay, we're on to something. So I dropped everything else I was doing and I just started uh, building this service. And we built a early prototype of it. And what I did is I followed up with those developers that I had that conversation with. I said, hey, you know that idea I talked to you about a few months ago? Well, here it is. And I'd send them an account on it and it would send them some documentation and say, just go wild. I'm curious, you know, I can't wait to see what you build. And they would start building. And they started building some really interesting things, some dumb things. They just started playing around with it, giving us great feedback, saying, oh, like, when are you building this? What about this? What about this? And really great early product feedback. And so with that great feedback coming in, we started, we started building more. And the summer of 2008, I went out to go raise money. So I said, okay, we got this amazing prototype. We got a great set of early customers. We're going to launch it this fall. Let me go raise a bunch of money. And then we'll launch with a, you know, like a, a full bank account. And it'll be great. Went out summer 2008 to go raise money. And guess what? Spent the whole summer, could not raise a dime. Literally not a single penny raised. We did not even have a bank account because we had nothing to put in it. <laughs> and it was really two things. Number one, financial meltdown. This was not a time when uh, venture capitalists were interested in making new investments. They were trying to shore up their existing investments. They were trying to figure out if, you know, three quarters of their portfolio was going to be bankrupt by the end of the year. And, you know, I literally had one uh, great venture capitalist, fantastic firm, early stage investor who was really interested in the idea. And I had the final partner meeting. So the, the Monday meeting, when you go in, you meet with the full partners, it's usually more of a rubber stamp because they've already, like you've got the partner who's sponsoring it, who's like, we're gonna do it. You just need to meet the whole partnership before I can, we can finalize it. I go into the Monday meeting and like the night before Lehman Brothers had collapsed. And I got there and they were just like, yeah, sorry, we're just not. We're not investing right now. And so we had the whole summer, didn't have anything, anything to show for it. But the other thing that was interesting, which was even folks who were maybe even pretending that they were still investing. I don't know, maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But they would say, you know, this whole API thing, I don't understand this, right? Developers, they aren't a market. They don't own the wallet. They can't spend money. Why don't you go build an app? And if what you really want is to build this platform, go build an app first. And if you're successful with an app, you can always add a platform to it later. And that was the common refrain back in 2008. They said, oh yeah, that's what Facebook did. Seems to be working out for them. And, you know, I remember going back to my two co-founders and saying, well, you know, this is the strong feedback we're getting from investors. You know, these are smart people. Maybe they're right. Maybe we should just go build an app. Maybe we should go build like a, a company phone system and we can add an API to it later. But in our gut, we knew that was not what we wanted to do for two reasons. One, as developers, we knew we didn't want an app. We wanted infrastructure. We wanted the thing that would let us go build any of these ideas that we had had in the past. And that sentiment was backed by all those early customers telling us we were on the right track. If I had built a company phone system, you know, voice mailboxes, extensions, all that kind of stuff, 
Would those developers have gotten excited about it? I do not think so. But the fact that it was infrastructure that let their imagination run wild because it wasn't an app, that's the thing that let them unlock all these new and interesting ideas that they've had. And so we stayed the course. We said, you know what? I think in choosing between listening to investors and customers, we're going to choose customers. We're going to let customers guide our actions. And if that works, then investors will follow suit. And sure enough, they did. So we got to launch in November of 2008. Immediately, we had a lot of developers signing up, people even starting to pay us. I remember the amazing, oh my God, they're putting in their credit cards. This is amazing. And revenue started to grow from month one. And month over month, just revenue was going up, up, up. And that's what investors, we circle back to those investors say, hey, we've got some more data points. And look, it was good to see customer traction. It was also good to be start, starting to put some distance between us and the financial crisis. And ultimately, we did raise that seed round in the very beginning of 2009. So, you know, you you go from strength to strength as you would, you know, both you've got that sort of massive product market fit of understanding a new category, being in the right place, obviously San Francisco, where, you know, there's amazing access to venture capital to support your growth, lots and lots and lots of funding to help sustain the traction. My question to you is, did you ever come close to failing? What were the toughest moments on the journey? What I would say is, there wasn't a tremendous amount of drama building Twilio because the interesting thing about B2B businesses is you you build the business in many ways one customer at a time. You keep growing, serving, learning, iterating, building. Unlike B2C companies where it's sort of binary outcomes, you either do like you launch something and it just falls flat on its face until you launch the next thing and the next thing until you figure out maybe something that works. B2B businesses, you know, for us, we look at our, our like kind of monthly revenue and it's basically just been ticked up pretty much every month since we've been in existence. And so there's less drama, like that moment where you're close to failure. The really the question for B2B businesses is how fast can you grow and how fast can you capture the opportunity as opposed to B2C where it's like you've got nothing until you've got your hockey stick. I think B2B businesses tend to be predictable. Now, not predictable in terms of like every business is going to succeed, but more predictable in terms of the growth trajectory that you can put yourself on if you do the right things and you have the right product market fit. But of course, there's tremendous learnings along the way because as, you know, I always look at it as a CEO of a fast growing company, you have to continually reinvent yourself in order to meet the expectations that the company now has and needs of you. So the CEO that you were at the 10 person company is not the CEO the 50 person company needs, which is not the CEO that the 500 person company needs. And the question is, are you going to learn the things that you need to learn to stay ahead of that growth curve so that you can properly serve the company and it's constantly changing needs. And I found that give or take every 18 to 24 months, the company needs a new CEO. And as my friend Nick Meta, who runs Gainsight once said, it's like, I sure hope it's me, <laughs> but that's the fact of the matter. And so, you know, what, what you find is that the things that you did to run the company, say a year ago, two years ago, they just don't feel quite like they're working anymore. Like, oh, a year ago, I used to say this and magical things would happen. And now I say this and it's like nothing happens anymore. What's going on? What's wrong? I thought I said the magic words. <laughs> like, turns out those magic words don't work anymore. You need new ones. 
And that's really the act of growing. First of all, realizing that that's happening, not getting frustrated and saying, what, what's wrong with all you people? No, you look at yourself, you're the CEO, and realize that you have to learn to adapt. Some of the interesting things in the history of Twilio, though, I will say, you know, there was the time when my co-founder accidentally deleted everyone's passwords, so they, the API stopped working. That was a fun one. How, how, did you react when, how did you react when he told you? Well, in the very early days of Twilio, uh, like in our first year. And at the time when a customer wrote into customer support to reset their, what's called their auth token, the token they used to talk to our API. Uh, I didn't exactly realize this, but apparently my co-founder would catch all those requests and he would just go into the SQL database and handcraft a SQL statement to generate a new auth token for their account. And anyone who's actually written SQL statements knows that eventually you're going to forget the where clause where you accidentally update the entire database as opposed to just one row. And of course, that's what happened. And I'm in an inter- I'm actually interviewing an employee. He busts into the room. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm in an interview. He's like, I, I, did, I did something bad. I'm like, can I wait? He's like, Duh, no. <laughs> and we, uh, we sat down. Like the whole company, which I think was like seven, eight people at the time, were like piled behind me. I'm at the keyboard looking at, uh, so you updated, yep, every customer's auth token got changed to one, the same value. So uh, when it went about initiating a database restore and, uh, and some important customer communications. But to me, I really learned a lot that day about like, look, you can't, you can't leave it up to manual. Human beings are, are fallible. We all make mistakes. You have to build a company that is resilient to human mistakes. I wasn't mad at John. I was mad at myself. How did I let this process that John was apparently doing every day, how did I let that go as a manual process? And, you know, being software people, you write software to solve problems and to do it right every time. You don't let human beings who inevitably make mistakes affect your customers that negatively. So luckily that mistake happened very early in the days of Twilio when the stakes were lower. You know, there's another interesting, you know, I had to, I had to part ways with, with one of my co-founders, my other co-founder. <laughs> Unrelated to that one, you know, we just weren't seeing eye to eye on how the business was going to get built on some of the culture things, on what the business was going to do. And that friction was really causing a lot of tumult within the company. And people could see that he and I weren't seeing eye to eye. He could see that we weren't agreeing on things. And everyone was like, what's, what's going on? Who do we listen to? What's, go- what, what's the plan? And I could see that this issue, if we didn't resolve it, was going was gonna to tank the company. And so we tried for you know, a year to figure out how are we going to work together. We couldn't figure it out. And so I had to make the difficult decision to say, you know, we need to part ways because this two co-founders not seeing eye to eye and how the company is going to operate, that is an existential problem for a young company. And that was probably the hardest thing that I did in the course of building Twilio. How do you approach a conversation like that, Jeff? You got to write it down. Like you can't uh, make one of those kind of conversations up on the fly. You really have to be thoughtful about what you're going to say. And you need to, st- I remember one time, some piece of advice that I got was when you need to have a really hard conversation with somebody, you script it. Because it's hard to stay on message. It's hard to stay on point when it's emotional and you're, you know, you, and you, especially when you know that person's probably going to try to talk you out of it. And so the thing to do is to write down what you want to say, the clear message you want to convey as well as your conviction with this is a decision. It's not a discussion and it sucks. It sucks, but you just, you write it, you write it down. You don't read from the script. You still have to be a human being. You still have to have empathy, 
but you are trying to stick to your core messages. And that is, it's tough. It's tough to have those conversations, but that's how you do it. That's how you psych yourself up. That's how you, and that's how you prepare. And that's how you make sure the conversation goes how you want it to go. When you went public in, in 2016, your, your company value uh, jumped by like almost a hundred percent, right? I think it was like 92% I read in the first day. So how did that make you feel initially as an entrepreneur? Did you, you know, is it a mix of both excitement and wow, we kind of underpriced this and you know, like where does the mindset go? Do you remember your actual emotions on that day or is it all one big blur? You know, the reason why we went public, I'll start with the reason why we went public. We went public because, you know, Twilio is not a household name by any stretch of the imagination. Yet we knew that as we were growing the company, we wanted to reach bigger and more strategic accounts as we grew, you know, more enterprise companies. We wanted to increase spend. We wanted more visibility. At the time, Twilio was a private company, even within Silicon Valley, the small world out here, you know, developers knew who we were, but a lot of other people did not. And this, despite the fact that we had grown to, you know, more than a hundred million in revenue and had a really healthy, amazing business growing. And so to me, it was like, when you go public, it is a PR event and it's a fundraising event. So to me, the PR event was the one I cared about because I wanted to put, I wanted to graduate Twilio from the minor leagues to the major leagues. And also I wanted us to be able to build more trust with big enterprise customers who may be more risk averse, who may be, uh, you know, have different decision-making processes than say like, you know, the, the Silicon Valley startups who are early customers. And what better way to build trust than to be an open book? Every quarter, you get to see our financials. Every quarter, you get to see uh, how the company is doing and you get to see how we're capitalized and you get, and that just builds trust. And you also know that company, public companies are just held to a higher bar than private companies. You don't know what's going on in a private company, but public companies, you know, they've been certified, they've been listed. The stock exchange has requirements. There's auditors, you know, there's a certain bar. And so it builds trust with your customers and prospective customers to be that open book. And so that was why I wanted to go public. And so in that, for that purpose, trust building and PR, we went public in June of 2016. And I don't know if you remember, but there was a SaaS correction in the public markets in the very early days of 2016. No companies had gone public. The market was deemed closed to IPOs since uh, about November of 2015. I think Square had been the last company to go public. No tech companies had gone public. It was a eight month drought. And all the bankers were telling us, well, you don't want to go out in this environment. You know, let someone else go test the market. And then if it's successful, you can go. And I was like, wait a minute, if our, if our number one goal was PR and awareness, this is the perfect time to go. We're going to get all the attention from all the press because no tech company has gone public in eight months. I'm like, this is the perfect time. So yeah, we pulled the trigger, we went public and we got a lot of attention, which was great. In fact, to date things, we went public, we priced, we traded. Our first day of trading was the day of the Brexit vote. I remember it was about three weeks before our IPO roadshow. And somebody raised like, hey, because we were supposed to actually price, which is like the last day. It's like the culmination of your IPO roadshow is the pricing event. And we were supposed to do that on the day of the Brexit vote. Because it was like, you'd usually do a two-week roadshow, starts on a Monday, usually price it on Thursday and your first trade's on Friday. Like that's the typical thing. And somebody was like, hey, you know, this is uh, the Brexit vote. I'm sure this won't be an issue because this is like 
that's not going to happen. Right. But you know, maybe we should account for it. And like, yeah, somehow, somehow we said, okay, fine, we'll move it up a day. And sure enough, we did. If we had been pricing in the evening hours of the day of the Brexit actually surprisingly passed, that would have been nuts. And in fact, it was interesting because in the UK, we actually got our fair share of, of television press for IPO, partially because we were the first IPO in eight months, but partially because they had nothing else to talk about because they can't talk about the, the polls while they're open. So they were like literally saying, we have nothing to talk about today because the biggest topic that's on everyone's mind is off limits. Hey, let's go to Wall Street and talk about this new tech IPO. What's this thing called Twilio? And uh, so it was interesting, but that was the day we went public. And the funny thing is, I never really overly worried about the IPO pricing dynamics. Because a lot of people are very agitated about the like, oh, there's this you know, bump in the first day of trading. Oh, you left all this money on the table. Maybe. But I never thought that optimizing the IPO for that moment was the goal. We're building a company for the long term. And if the IPO is successful, it means that I got great visibility for the company. I successfully began the next phase of the company on this new, much bigger stage. And I built a cap table of public investors that could support me for a long period of time. And this was my beginning of my relationship with those investors. So right out of the gate, do I need to hyper-optimize for price? I didn't think so. I thought my goal was to optimize for achieving those goals. And if I left a little bit on the table and you know some of those investors made a little extra money, so be it. And again, it's a lot of the investors who make money in IPOs are not the long-term investors, so be it. It's fine. Because yeah, like maybe I could have raised more money in that IPO, but guess what? I had a happy investor base that I've subsequently gone back to multiple times and raised more money from at far greater valuations and far greater dollar sums. And that's what matters, that you've got a good, happy uh, investor base that you rely on for the long term as partners. So that's what I was optimizing for. And I think a lot of folks, venture capitalists came back to me afterwards and they said, hey, you know, hey, Jeff, doing it over again, would you have done a direct listing? Because it was kind of in the early days of those new direct listings. I said, you know what? No. And they said, why? You could have, you know, there's so much waste in the system. I said, you know what? I do this on IPO. I do exactly once in the lifetime of the company. I don't need to fully optimize it. Things that I do every day, I get it. I want to optimize. I want to really understand. I want to innovate on those things. A thing that I do exactly once in the history of the company that I know nothing about going into it because I've never done it before and I'll never do it again, I'm going to be fine with doing it the traditional way, even if I leave something on the table, because it's not the thing that I need to spend a huge amount of my mind share, my executive team's mind share on. What would you say, because you mentioned, you touched on this earlier, what would you say is like one of your biggest flaws? The, obviously, you've done lots of personal growth. Every 18 months, you've got to improve yourself. What are one of your biggest flaws, I guess, you know, from development feedback cycles that you've had from your team and stuff that you're still working on? You still haven't quite got right. You know, I'm, uh, I'm very much an introvert. As you may have guessed, a software developer. And to me, that means human conversations, human interactions, are taxing. You know, you look at the kind of literal definition of, of an introvert, you know, some people see introverts as people who can't interact with human beings. That's not really it. It's that for introverts, it takes a lot of energy to interact with other human beings. 
Whereas extroverts actually gain energy from these human interactions. Introverts spend energy. And so how that manifests is that, you know, conversations with other people or meeting new people is a very taxing thing. And our, we actually tend to have, therefore, mechanisms to, to try to prevent it, right? Something that saps your energy. You're like, okay, how do I avoid this? You know, that's like subconscious almost. And you have to overcome a lot of those introvert tendencies that you do to try to protect yourself in order to be, I think, a personable person, whether it's dealing with your team, whether it's interviewing, like interview loops are incredibly draining to me. You got to meet a whole lot of strangers and assess them and decide which one I think is the right person for this job. For an introvert, that is taxing. And so one of the things that I'm always looking to do is to better understand myself and understand, okay, here, like be cognizant of my natural inclination and then develop strategies to overcome them. How do I cope with the fact that my days are now things that, unlike when I was writing code, focusing on a hard problem, staring at a computer screen, that would give me energy. I could code for like weeks on end and not even sleep. But now like being a CEO and meeting people, I need a lot more sleep now, for example. And so just recognizing that, giving yourself the, you know, feeding your, your soul and your body with the things that you need, then helps you focus on the things that you need to compensate for. So when I think about like being an introvert, that's one of the things that I, I have to plan and, and craft my life around knowing that my work days are going to sap me of energy. So I do things like I, I plan think weeks to try to uh, recoup, regain energy, but also get all the things that have been swirling around in my head for a while, they haven't had a chance to actually solidify into writing, get them down into writing. And you know, some people confuse that with like, oh, you took a vacation week. I'm like, no, it's not vacation week. This is work. But it's the work that I don't get to do in the course of the normal week. And it's the opportunity to recharge, not in a vacation way, recharge in the work way. Do the work that actually energizes me naturally. I'm not saying that interacting with people isn't great. And I don't love it. And I love working with people. But I recognize that it just takes energy as opposed to solo work gives me energy. I also do a lot of tinkering. You know, I write code still. I've been tinkering with hardware through the pandemic because that's been a, a fun little pandemic hobby. And I do that stuff, A, because as a developer, I still want to stay current. I want to learn the new things that are going on in the developer world because my work day doesn't provide that to me anymore. But B, it's also nourishing for my soul. And you need to take care of your soul. Perfect. So then final question, Jeff, which is, uh, what is the uh, best piece of advice that you could offer listeners looking to go on their own stratospheric, meteoric rise to building great companies like you've done? What I have found is that my best work is driven when I viscerally care about a customer and a problem we can solve for them. And I found that when I, I don't have that visceral connection to the customer, or the problem we're solving for them, how we're making their life better, when it's just kind of a dry like business opportunity, like, yeah, we can make some money. I don't really care about the outcome. I don't do my best work. I think a lot of intrinsically motivated people are like that, especially for entrepreneurs, where you put so much blood, sweat, and tears into the thing that you're building. You should really have that visceral connection to why you're doing that, why you're undergoing this arduous path. So my advice to entrepreneurs is often really seek something where you have that visceral connection to the problem you're solving for a customer. 
Because otherwise, I think it's hard to get through all those difficult times, and I don't think you're going to do your best work. So if you find yourself in a situation where that's not true, where you don't have that visceral connection, I think you gotta you got to pull the ripcord. you got to go find that. Otherwise, look, the time we have on Earth is a most finite resource. Spend it wisely. Do things you love. Have conviction. That's my advice. Jeff, developer, CEO, founder, and poet, it turns out. That was a great way to end. Thank you so much for your time, mate. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. I'm tired and there are a lot of people around who are tired of asking the question, what to do to improve the lives of Black Britain? All the solutions that come up require capital by going hat in hand to some other organization, whether it be government, whether it be private funders, please, this is what we believe in. We think you should believe in it. Give us some capital. And that's ridiculous. It is not a sustainable way to actually get change and it's not an empowering way to get change. That was Eric Collins, an American entrepreneur who came to the UK a few years ago and is now the CEO of Impact X, a VC fund that invests in underrepresented founders. He's also the star of Channel 4's new show, The Moneymaker, which makes him the moneymaker. Tune in or you'll miss out. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.